All right. Welcome to this week's episode of Temple Talks. I am sitting here with Sandy Divac Moss, um, who is my mother. And when I introduce her in uh, many Jewish settings, I call her, and she, this might embarrass her, a nonprofit Jewish superstar. You're currently the executive director of Stephen Wise Free Synagogue, but you've also worked for a number of Jewish nonprofits, uh, museums, and community services and all sorts. So we're going to dive into issues related to those organizations. I have a funny story. Yeah. So when I be first became executive director of Stephen Wise, I don't know what you and your sister really imagined I was doing. And it was right before my first high holy days, I believe, Rosie came to the office and, you know, it's like Helm. There, everything's moving fast and there are problems to solve. Helm, Helm is the, uh, the Yiddish folk stories location where nothing works right and the people are all ridiculous for those who aren't familiar with that tradition. So it was absolutely Helm-like. It was a crazy day. Rosie is there and she said, Mom, this is so fun. This is so interesting. It's just like West Wing. The TV show. The TV show. And that was the point, I think, working in a synagogue and being involved with all these facets of synagogue life is a ball. It is no two days are the same. It, it might as well be the West Wing. It might as well be the White House. There are crises to solve. There are factions to handle. You know, there's just all, so it's great. I love it. Uh, your parents, my grandparents, uh, your dad was a dentist and your mom was an interior designer. How did you end up having a passion for Jewish communal work and getting involved in the early stages of that? I would say that from the first early days that my dad became a dentist, he always gave back. Early in his career, he volunteered a day or half a day a week in Harlem at Sidon Hospital. And he used to bring me there. I had a little white uniform. I would help him help poor people who couldn't afford to have their uh, teeth fixed. I guess from a very early age, I understood we each have a role to play in making the world a better place. And um, my mom, as an interior designer, everything she touched, she beautified and uh, sanctified. And that also is a value to repair the world I got from both of them. And then kind of what, what brought you to, into doing that specifically in the Jewish community? Serendipity, really. I had enrolled a teacher's college at Columbia University to study economics as applied to educational planning with an eye toward working in Africa but I needed a part-time job. But well, the subway in New York used to have these ads and it would say, I got my job through the New York Times. And I saw an ad for a job at Jewish Theological Seminary, which was two blocks away. And the job related to building a program for the elderly by creating scholarships for rabbinical, cantorial and education students uh, what happened was I went on this interview and I spent an hour and a half with Rabbi Morton Leifman. Now, the reason 
that I was called in for the interview and why I say serendipity is I had been a candy striper at a nursing home uh, when I was a young teen, like just maybe around my bat mitzvah, maybe, maybe for two years. And I had this pink and white stripe uniform and I helped the elderly. And then I get to JTS and I sit with Rabbi Leifman and I'd already had these substantive experiences with elderly people as a candy striper and, and in my own family. And Rabbi Leifman described a vision for a program the Brookdale Foundation was funding that was open for a year and a half. And lo and behold, by the end of the hour and a half, I was hired to direct the program. And that started me on um, really a lifelong career in the Jewish community. And for many, many years in leadership of services for the elderly in New York City. So the idea that uh, Rabbi Leifman spawned or that the Brookdale Foundation spawned is they gave, I believe at the time, a million dollars to each of the seminaries in New York City. And they said, figure out individually how each of you rabbinic seminaries is going to train rabbinical students primarily to understand the needs of Jewish elderly. Now, remember, in the 1970s, there were lots of Holocaust survivors in New York. There were uh, elderly uh, Jews who uh, had been part of the immigrant generation around uh, 1900. And uh, figure it out, figure out how to train the rabbis to be, to be sensitive and to program for the elderly. So I set out to forge relationships with nursing homes and senior centers um, so that students would teach courses. And some students for really frail uh, people were set up on one-on-one -on -one, uh, visits but generally it was all courses in contemporary Jewish life and Jewish history, in Torah, Talmud, Midrash, mm -hmm. just full gamut. And so that spiraled into, um, I think your next major endeavor, which is Dorot, uh, servicing the same community more or less, but could you tell us about Dorot, which still exists today? So what happened was a group of students from Columbia University people who uh, weren't yet, but were almost my friends, had this idea of creating Dorot, Hebrew for generations, Lador Vador, from generation to generation, with the elderly. My friend, uh, Neil Schechter, he was curious about my work, and he uh, invited me to join the founding board uh, of Dorot, which I did. We had an initial grant from the then Jewish Association for College Youth. Hillel was not big in New York in those days. And, well, I mean, there was Hillel, but there was also this thing called uh, Jackie, Jewish Association for College Youth. So Dorot started, fortunately, with a $5,600 grant from Jackie. What can you do with a $5,600 grant? So maybe it was Neil, I don't know who it was, who suggested that I kind of direct this thing. 
get it off the ground. And uh, so I did. So what, what was the mission and first services that Duro offered? So the first services were really holiday packages for homebound elderly. But how do you find homebound elderly Jews? The idea was that we, the young people, would uh, bring, you know, matzah and horseradish and a jar of gefilte fish, etc., um, or at Hanukkah candles, um, and that we would spend an hour visiting with uh, a frail older person. But the more interesting thing, I think, than the actual packages themselves is how we found these frail elderly, because we would walk around the neighborhood and we would uh, ask the postman, we would ask doorman, we would ask people standing in front of buildings, are there isolated elderly here? And we were able to build a list Mm -hmm. building by building. And so if you met one old person, they tell you about another old person. The core of the mission was the mutual growth that's possible when, uh, when people connect deeply. And so um, at that time, the value proposition was that each generation had as much to gain from the other. It wasn't about doing for the elderly. Of course, there was a lot of doing for the elderly. But in American Jewish history, my parents' generation, the objective there was the melting pot, was assimilation. And there was so much that we had, we, my, my peers, had to learn um, about living life Jewishly that we didn't necessarily learn from our parents where their mindset was to become more American, but that we could learn from this older generation. That's a, what you're talking about is actually something that's drawn me to the rabbinate and to synagogue life in particular is that I think in contemporary society, there's fewer and fewer opportunities for intergenerational connection. We don't all live in a small town. There's not a strong town center where you're interacting across generations. But at the synagogue, I think there's so much, like you've been saying, for, for younger people to learn from older people, older people to learn from younger people. Yeah. I built the largest core of volunteers visiting the elderly in America. Not just visiting the elderly, you know, uh, because I came up with the idea of conference call seders. It struck me that Passover is such an important thing and that there were these homebound people who couldn't have a seder. I remember a particular woman who had MS who was completely bedbound. And so we delivered all the accoutrement, including, of course, a Haggadah and a shank bone. And at the time, the only way you could set up conference calls or 
we as a not-for-profit could set up conference calls was to work through New York Telephone so that we would give the, say, the 10 numbers that would need to hook together in a conference call. And I got these uh, young people who commit to run conference calls, satyrs, and so the shut-in elderly would join together for a satyr, and then that eventually morphed uh, into what still exists today at Dorot, a university without walls. And the, the satyrs um, uh, ended up uh, not just being on Jewish events, but uh, throughout the year on topics like everyone would watch Phil Donahue, which is like Oprah, the then, a man, but whatever. And then they would have an opportunity to talk uh, together. That that conference call Seder is kind of in many ways a, a precursor to what's been happening during this pandemic and what many synagogues have you know, always known in some way, but really realized and materialized during this period is that there's a lot of people who can't come to the synagogue for a variety of reasons uh, relating to accessibility. And we can do so much more to meet people where they're at and leverage technology that's existed since uh, the 80s and now new technology that's here today to to bring as much Jewish life to as many people as we as we can. I'm always touched in uh, Erev uh, High Holidays when Rabbi Hirsch makes call after call after call, blowing shofar over the phone for uh, the members of Stephen Wise who are sick or can't get out and how powerful hearing the shofar is. Of course, talking to the rabbi too, but the, the, the call of the shofar itself, it's a deeply penetrating call. I'd love to ask you about one of your passions within the executive director work and probably predates that. Why, why do you love Jewish cemeteries? Well, first of all, we stand on the shoulders of the people who came before us. So to understand and really appreciate the sacrifices that people have made. At Stephen Wise, our cemetery is an extraordinary eye on the impact of 20th century Jews and also reflects a particular 19th century view of cemeteries as parks. I live in Minneapolis, just a few blocks away from 36th Street, where we have a a huge cemetery that's really available as a park and that makes it kind of a resource that's that's active and engaged with are, are there opportunities for Stephen wise congregants or the general population to to visit your cemetery besides for you know on a yard site where people go to visit just their loved one but do you have any programming that's that's amplified the cemetery as a learning opportunity so yeah one in particular is we have the cemetery is in Westchester County, and we've developed relations with schools so that children come, like a class will come or a grade will come, 
and they'll paint rocks. They'll, they'll take stones and they'll paint stars on them or, or hearts, or they'll write shalom. And then when visitors come to visit their loved ones, of course, they could take a rock off the ground or they take one of these beautiful embellished rocks that elementary school children made when visiting our cemetery and they put them on the monuments. We just finished a, when I say just finished, we haven't gotten our certificate of occupancy in hand yet, but we are finishing a major a two and a half million dollar restoration of our chapel, which we haven't been able to use the chapel in over 10 years because of disrepair. But there is a vision. The Gershwins are buried, Ira and George, of having Gershwin concerts. Um, we have Sidney Hillman, a great union organizer. We have visions of Labor Day lectures. We have lots of ideas going forward. Yeah, I'd love to think about how Temple Israel can can make uh, different programs available to engage our cemetery. And I think uh, we're reaching capacity in it. So it's definitely uh, something we have to develop as a community as well, a, vi a vision moving forward. One of the major projects that we haven't yet spoken about in your career is the restoration and transformation of Eldridge Street Synagogue. So I bet some of the listeners, even in Minneapolis, haven't encountered it as it's a famous uh, landmark now for touring the, the Jewish past on the Lower East Side and, and the Jewish present. Would you tell us how you got involved in Eldridge Street and what it represents today? Sure. A friend of mine had mentioned to me that there was the very beginnings of a group of uh, people led by a Wall Street lawyer and uh, former writer Roberta Gratz from the New York Post, who um, were uh, trying to establish an organization to rescue this synagogue, Kahal Adath Yeshurun Va'anshe Lubes on Eldridge Street, and that I should meet Roberta because we had a lot in common, and uh, maybe I could help them. So this was in 1986, and I went with Roberta to Eldridge Street and entered this synagogue where one of the stairwells was on the verge of collapse. Windows were broken and pigeons were all over this gorgeous, opulent synagogue. Spittoons were still in the aisles on the floor. And Roberta said that she wanted to devote the rest of her life to bringing this synagogue back to life. Now, what was interesting was there was still a minion. It was an Orthodox synagogue. Ten men would gather on Shabbat and holidays in the basement uh, to pray, but they did not have the resources nor really the connections or vision to restore the synagogue. And so I started first on a three month exploratory consulting contract, which grew to eight years of consulting 
to help bring a vision of a restored landmark for the study of American Jewish immigration and synagogue function and symbols and life mm -hmm. to, uh, to the world. Right, because the Lower East Side was famously an epicenter of Jewish life in the early mid 1900s, but then no longer is the case um, as it's transformed as a neighborhood. There used to be more synagogues on the Lower East Side than I think in probably any neighborhood. Right, so the thing though that differentiated Eldridge was that synagogue was built in 1888. It was the first synagogue built as a synagogue in America by Eastern European Jews. So prior to them, Eastern European Jews mm -hmm. had worshiped in former churches, like the one on Norfolk Street, where my grandmother uh, as a child worshiped, it's a digression, but, uh, or in storefronts, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but Eldridge was built to be a synagogue and where the immigrant Jews proudly said, we're here, you know? The first president of the synagogue, Sender Yarmolovsky, was the, a, a major Jewish banker on the Lower East Side. The um, architects of the synagogue, the Herder brothers, had built tenements for immigrant Jews. Well, they built tenements. They were trying, they were not Jewish, but they were trying to recruit uh, Jewish tenants. And so if you walk around the Lower East Side, you see many Herder Brothers buildings with Magen David on the outside. The mm -hmm. idea was that these downtrodden Jews would see a Jewish star and they would be like, ah, the Golden Medina, I should, I should rent from the Herder Brothers uh, rather than in another building. Maybe that had more Irish immigrants or Italian. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Right, a different, a different, uh, totally different world than than right now. And the name of the synagogue you said ends in, um, you said uh, Anche Lubes. Anche Lubes. So is Lubes a place? Yes. So Jews from different villages, different towns, uh, the people of. So like my ancestors, my father's uh, father's family came from Prusnik. There were these burial societies or Landsmannschaft, not, you know, Landsmannschaften weren't just mm -hmm. burial societies, but one of the first things that Jews did here is, is form uh, societies uh, to, to bury their dead. Right. And I think Landsmannschaft, maybe a decent definition is places of origin organizations, right? So it was, it was so not just that Polish Jews would all have one organization to partner with each other in, but actually Polish Jews from this one city or that other city. And so a lot of those early synagogues on the Lower East Side were kind of shtetl, kind of shtetl remakes. Um, and so Anshe Lubes, the people of Lubes, at first, I guess, Eldridge Street was just really serving kind of one sub community but then I think it probably grew to be a more uh, expansive community. Uh, well, those two communities had merged in advance of building the building. 
Gotcha. When, when I visited there, one of the beautiful things that they show on the tour is that in the pews where people daven and shake back and forth, there's actually, you can kind of see footprints and depressions in the wood from 120 years uh, of prayer. It's really a beautiful space. And if, and if anyone who's listening has never seen Eldridge Street Synagogue, look, look it up online. It, there's beautiful images of the stained glass windows and of the, the whole structure and it's beautifully preserved and it, it's a great place to go for a tour if you're if you visit New York City. It's also something worth saying. We Jews who had this migratory history, who passed through the Lower East Side, moved uptown and out, you know, in a very short time moved from the Lower East Side to Harlem, to the West Side, to the East Side, to Scarsdale, Great Neck, wherever, and really didn't look back. And one of the uh, really brilliant strategic moves, I think, um, that Roberta and Bill Josephson and I envisioned was that if we got the leaders, non-Jewish leaders, to embrace the restoration of Eldridge Street, we would get the Jewish community to follow. And so strategically uh, on the board, we asked the very Reverend James Parks Morton, the, the uh, Dean of the Episcopal Cathedral in New York, the largest Episcopal Cathedral uh, in the world, I think, uh, if he would join, we reached out to Bill Moyers and uh, Roberta through her literary world knew Bill and asked him if he would um, give an address. And we reached out to Brooke Astor, uh, Mrs. Astor of, you know, the great philanthropist. Uh, and really through those very critical early associations, we were able to establish the very broad value of uh, preserving this piece of Jewish history, that it was vital to the history of all of New York City to understand the Jewish immigrant history, that it's not just a particular story, it's through the particular story that we learn of the full humanity mm -hmm. and, and the role of, of these uh, these Jews and that wave of immigration and the open door of America to welcome immigrants. Yeah, I think Minneapolis is in and St. Paul are in a similar process of of exploring roots and how different neighborhoods changed over the course of uh, the last hundred years. Here, just last week, I was visiting in St. Paul um, in the Rondo neighborhood, which was a historic and still is a historic African-American neighborhood that um, was traumatized by the building of a highway there. And so the Rondo neighborhood is trying to uh, redevelop and, and get its fair share uh, of resources. But what Marvin Anderson was showing me, the man who's leading an effort there, was he was showing me maps where parts of Minneapolis and St. Paul were labeled on the official maps slum and I, that probably meant some designation of don't give resources there. And 
within the slum spaces, it said for different in different areas, uh, Jews, Negroes, Italians, um, and um, that we were sharing spaces in these different neighborhoods for for many years and and struggling to get on our and on each community struggling to get on on solid feet um, in these cities and in the northeast of Minneapolis in northeast in Minneapolis there's that was the kind of historic center of Jewish community before the community went to the suburbs and went to other parts of the area and I know there's buildings there that that have a history to tell um, and I hear from from people my age a curiosity of of learning more about that history and some people who are beginning to to explore it and and highlight it the synagogue that you're the executive director of Stephen Wise Free Synagogue can you give us a, a brief picture of of how the name came to be and what it, what it represents yes so Rabbi Stephen Wise so here's the story Rabbi Stephen Wise had worked at Congregation B'nai Jeshurun in New York, was recruited to Portland, Oregon to be the senior rabbi there, went all the way to Portland, Oregon uh, at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, from Oregon uh, went to Basel, Switzerland, to the uh, Zionist Congress. It's like hard to even wrap your head around how long it would have taken him to do that voyage. And um, Rabbi Wise was offered the rabbinate at Temple Emmanuel in New York. And there's this fantastic correspondence between Rabbi Wise and uh, the leaders of Emmanuel. But there was an impasse, which is Rabbi Wise said that clergy needed to have freedom of the pulpit to say whatever uh, he wanted. And the board said that the sermons had to be vetted by the board of trustees. And so uh, he did not become the rabbi there. Instead, he founded the free synagogue on the core principles of freedom of the pulpit and freedom of the pew, freedom for the rabbi to say whatever he or nowadays she uh, believed needed to be said and freedom of the pew to sit wherever you want, not on the basis of uh, whether or not you could buy a seat in a good location mm. in the sanctuary. And Rabbi Wise's free synagogue what was established in 1907. Um, interestingly, services took place at Carnegie Hall. Rabbi Wise was such a tremendous leader of the uh, Zionist movement that when Golda Meir used to come to raise money for the founding of the state, she would return to Israel stating she had Steve's in her pocket. And that meant that she had money and pledges 
from Jews around the country when Rabbi, Rabbi Wise also founded a rabbinical seminary, the Jewish Institute of Religion at JIR. And the idea behind JIR was that Jews of the different denominations would study to become rabbis together. Uh, after his death, JIR uh, merged with HUC, Hebrew Union College, so that where you, Tobias, and Rabbi Zimmerman, etc., everyone, uh, except Jason, studied uh, to be rabbis. It's Hebrew Union College dash Jewish Institute for Religion. Right. That's where our long acronym comes from, 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 from Rabbi Wise himself. And Rabbi Wise himself started the free synagogue movement. There was a free synagogue still is in Flushing, in, uh, outside of Chicago. Um, was a, in, he had in mind a movement. Yeah, well, I think Temple Israel has been touched by that movement at some point in its past because uh, our seats are just first come, first served. Uh, so freedom of the pew and and Rabbi Zimmerman speaks your mind and empowers the rest of us to do the same. Um, so, yep, it's been great uh, experiencing Stephen Wise's legacy at your synagogue and also just as it touched American Jewish life and my rabbinical school and all of that. Before, well before I was rabbinically interested, I always thought I was going to follow your path and uh, Columbia Business School was going to be my, my graduate degree. Maybe still the case, who knows? But what do you think a clergy member, a rabbi, a cantor, what aspects of uh, the business school education do you wish that clergy knew um, and could, could speak the same language. A budget is an expression of values. Every time you budget, every year you budget, you're putting forth what are the values of the institution? What are the resources that are needed to bring those values into action? And to be able to then use it as a snapshot is important being able to have data and to learn from information can sometimes shatter assumptions and help planning. One of the things that I know many of my peers coming out of rabbinical school are kind of nervous or overwhelmed about, and it doesn't really happen right away because we're young in our careers, but that eventually um, that a rabbi has a real role to play for the institution in fundraising. Do you have any advice on, on how to approach that in a, in, a, in a Jewish institutional context? Absolutely. So let me start by going back to go forward. Mm -hmm. First of all, you have to recognize what you don't know and you always have to get mentors or training. But then you, you, you just need to get your feet wet. So in the beginning of Dorot, for example, when, as I said before, we had an annual budget of $5,600, it was pretty clear you can't run anything on $5,600. What I did, what we did then is I said to the founding board, we care about this. Everybody we know has to care about this. And we built a list. And basically it was everybody in my phone book and the other founders' phone books. And 
we wrote letters and we planned events and we reached out to everybody we know. So much so that we had uh, events at the then Studio 54 for 1,500 young Jews, the Red Parrot, the Top of the World Trade Center, um, big, big events where uh, we raised thousands of dollars, but it came from a place of, we believe in this mission. If we believe in it, you should believe in it too, and we're gonna ask. But the other thing that I've held on to throughout my career is the importance of diversified funding. It's not good if you're in the dress business to only sell to Walmart, because if Walmart decides, uh, I can buy, you know, your dresses cheaper or have someone copy them. My mother had been in the better dress, mm -hmm. hence the dress uh, early in her career, hence that analogy that popped into my head. Um, so from the earliest days of Dorote and similarly at Stephen Wise and everywhere I've worked, my approach has been to say you need to you have more independence as an institution when you have diversified funding. So for a synagogue, that means that you need membership, you need fees, and you need philanthropy. You need large donors and you need lots of small donors. So that if any one element gives way for one reason or another, the institution can, and government for that matter, mm -hmm. uh, the institution can still thrive. Early in my career, I was really, really lucky because Rabbi Steve Shaw, now uh, deceased, and David Zoni, two uh, young uh, people, started something called the Radius Institute. And the idea behind Radius was to enable uh, people like me uh, to be Jewish social entrepreneurs by providing a setting for us to share with one another and to grow. And so I would go like a sponge. I still have these notebooks today where there would be philanthropic leaders, uh, leaders in, in direct marketing, um, all kinds of um, specific narrow skills in fundraising to learn from. And I would encourage every young professional to seek out regular, if not weekly, monthly courses and opportunities to grow. You want to know best practices, both within the Jewish world, but also in the not-for-profit sector. Uh, well, Mom, as, as I opened with uh, you being this nonprofit Jewish superstar in my mind, you've inspired me so you've inspired me greatly in my pursuit of Jewish communal life and and of the rabbinate and of knowing how much work goes into creating a community that's focused on each other and focused on Torah. And as a rabbi, I feel a responsibility to to study the texts and lead great prayer and but also to be really engaged in how the institution itself is formed and developed. And I, I love how you said that an institution always needs to be growing either in depth or in breadth or reinventing itself. 
and you've really inspired me to to work towards that and have have a really clear north star in, in my Jewish communal work. This temple is real. Many of the values and ideas that we talked about today are so evident there. The pride of place, the Hidor mitzvah seems apparent in everything that this synagogue touches. And the fact that it didn't move to the suburbs, the fact that its roots on Hennepin Avenue remain uh, so deep, the relation between this synagogue and the, and the clergy and other uh, urban communities and the deep role of uh, religion in advancing society, my breath is taken away because the synagogue is really such um, a special place. Thank you. Well, to everyone who's been listening, if you have any comments or questions, they can be directed to tmoss at templeisrael.com. And if you want to be connected to my mom for any of the uh, stories or wisdom that she has uh, to uniquely share, I can connect you or get your comments and questions back to her. So thank you for your inspiration and thank you for, for joining Temple Talks.